I don't know if anybody has noticed, but over the last uh, four weeks since we started the book of Exodus, I've gone a little short with my messages, you know, about five minutes or so. I was storing up time for today. <laughs> so uh, so bear, bear with me. This might be a little bit longer than usual. Um, this, this has been an incredible journey through the book of Exodus. Let me tell you, it's, it's, it's like a bottomless well. You know, you, you just keep going and going. And, and this is no exception uh, for chapter 3 today. Uh, it is, it's going to be fun unpacking it. Uh, the amount of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor, though, was ridiculous. So uh, I hope you guys are enjoying your time in the book of Exodus. This morning, it was kind of interesting. Uh, Callie was... Uh, talking about Dante's Divine Inferno, and then she brought up Shakespeare. And I thought, okay, that's a great opening for me because that was, that was my attention getter this morning. Shakespeare. Shakespeare said um, once, asked, he actually asked the question, he says, what's in a name? Remember, does anybody remember that? What's in a name? And he goes on to say, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. You know, when I, I just, for years I heard that. I had no idea what he was talking about. But, um, but I came to realize that what he meant was that it really doesn't matter what something is called, what something's name is. What really matters is the essence of the thing. So, I mean, if you had a rose, but you called it by a different name, it would still be a rose. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But in Scripture, we find that uh, uh, in a name, it, it, it can mean a great deal. There, there's great significance to names in the Bible, especially when it comes to God. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time here this morning, for your word to us. Lord, we just pray that you would open up um, our ears, our minds, and our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, by way of review, we finished up chapter two last week. And uh, if you weren't here, uh, here's a brief synopsis. Um, Moses has grown up. He uh, goes out amongst his people, the Hebrews, and he sees an Egyptian beating a fellow Hebrew, and he comes to his aid, and he ends up killing the man, and he is found out, and so he flees to Midian, uh, about 300 miles uh, south, southeast of where the palace was there in Egypt, and um, he eventually uh, settles down, settles in, marries uh, a woman there, has a son. His, uh, his name means something to the akin of, I'm a stranger here. And um, he, uh, the, the Midianites are an interesting group of people because uh, Midian was one of Abraham's sons. And so, uh, and uh, Ruol, who is also known as Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest of Midian. So no doubt, during this time there, Moses learned a great deal about uh, the God of Abraham. It's interesting, too, that um, Ruel's name means friend of God. Jethro means friend of God. And so 
here in the wilderness, uh, you know, we're, keep in mind, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative. So we're, we're hitting it. We're not reading the whole story. But we have to understand that Moses is spending a lot of time here in Midian. And his character is being refined here in the wilderness. And he learned a great many lessons while he was in Midian. He, he learned how to care for and to lead his family. He learned how to care for sheep as well. But most importantly, I think Moses learned how to wait on God. Uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 30 tells us that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before he received his call from God. So he was 40 years old when he left Egypt. He spends 40 years in Midian before he received his call from God. So he receives his call from God when he's 80 years old. <laughs> Can you imagine if you were 80 years old and then all of a sudden got a call from God um, to begin a, a ministry of deliverance? Because that's exactly what happened here to Moses. And Interestingly enough, because of the time that he spent in Midian, Moses would become perfectly suited to lead God's people out of the land of Egypt because he knew the land. He would know where to find water. He would know where to take God's people. So here we are in, in chapter 3 now, and this is a, a familiar story to most of us. It's the story of the burning bush and Moses' call from God. And in this chapter, what we'll learn is that God reveals himself to those he calls. And then he graciously uses the called to achieve his purposes in the world. So my outline this morning is really kind of simple. It simply follows the events of this chapter. First, you're gonna see that God reveals himself to Moses, and then God commissions Moses. Then God is questioned by Moses, and finally God instructs Moses and affirms him. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Exodus chapter 3 as we look at God's revelation to Moses, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the midst of the bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So from this passage, we learn Moses' occupation. He was a shepherd. 
And he's taking care of his father-in-law's flock. And in so doing, Moses learns a great deal of humility. In Genesis 46, verse 34, we read that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And even in Jesus' day, shepherds were, 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 were pretty low on the social ladder. And here is Moses, once the prince of Egypt, working and making a living as a shepherd. And it says that he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. And Horeb may come from the Hebrew word for desert. Sinai may actually come from the desert of Sin, which is kind of interesting when you think about the name. But this is the same mountain that Moses would later receive the Ten Commandments from. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us the exact location of Mount Sinai. Um, scholars do not agree on where it is located. But the site that is often mentioned um, is uh, a place called Jebel Musa. Uh, it's in southern Sinai, and it means the mountain of Moses. Um, the, the mountain rises almost... Uh, 7,500 feet up in the air. And to this day, you can go there and you can travel to the summit where there's actually a chapel there. And inside the chapel, there are uh, many frescoes uh, depicting the life of Moses. Some scholars think that a location in northern or central Sinai makes more sense. Um, but then there are other scholars who believe that Mount Sinai is actually located on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, in which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. In any event, if you were a shepherd taking care of the flock, you would travel great distances in order to care for the sheep, to find good grazing ground and, and water to sustain them. And it was in the course of his work as a shepherd that God then appears to him. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, the word for angel here is the same word that's used in other parts of Scripture. It simply means a messenger. But in verse 4, we are told that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. To which Moses replied, here I am. You found me. Now, most scholars refer to this as a theophany, uh, which is basically a visible manifestation of the invisible God that although it says an angel of the Lord, that it was truly the Lord that had appeared to him. And even before Moses learned God's name, he would learn a great deal about the God of Abraham because the burning bush in itself carries so much information. It tells us so much about God. It speaks of the inexhaustible, and self-sustaining presence and power of God. He is Lord over creation and all of the elements. 
The burning bush points to the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. His glory never dims, it never fades, it is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he is not dependent on another to sustain his glory. The burning bush is also a picture of the holiness of God. In fact, Moses would write later about the holiness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, he writes, your God is a consuming fire. I think I've shared this before, but, you know, back in the day when people used to have bumper stickers on their car, you know, I hated all the things that, you know, you know, you know, just they were so trite. I thought if I ever had a bumper sticker, this would be it. Smile, our God is a consuming fire. And, you know, it's just, I loved it. This is the first time in scripture that we find the word holy in reference to God. You have the whole book of Genesis. And this is the first time that it's used in reference to God. Later, Moses would sing about his holiness. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But the holiness of God means so much more than just his righteousness. And he is righteous. It, it, it means that God is altogether different. He is unique and distinct from his creation. Unlike pantheism that has God a part of his creation, God stands above his creation. He is the creator. He is separate and above it. He is, a, he is overall. He is altogether holy. Now notice God warns Moses, do not come near. Then he tells him to take off his sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, it's not that the ground itself was holy, but it was made holy by the presence of God. It was set apart for the very purposes of God in meeting with Moses here. And God wanted to showcase his glory, and he wanted Moses to know that there is an infinite gap between God and man. Moses, we're, we're not even in the same universe here. And in taking off his sandals, Moses was acknowledging the holiness of God. And, and to this day, in that part of the world, taking off one's shoes is a sign of respect. Notice that Moses hid his face. Why is that? Because <laughs> he was afraid to look at God. I mean, wouldn't you be? He knew that he was a sinful man. He knew that he was standing in the presence of a holy God. Later in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asks God, do you remember this? He asked God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. What does God say to him? You can't. You can't see my face. For no man can see me and live. I said it's a pretty good reason for not looking. 
It reminds me of just a little bit of Simon Peter, too. When, when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't be anywhere near the presence of God and not understand the gap, the gulf that exists between us. I really wish that we had such a disposition. I think one of the things that we have lost sight of in Protestantism is the holiness of God. We, we, we've lost our, our, our sense of reverence for God. I really believe that. It's one of the things I will say I miss about the Catholic Church. Whenever I would walk into that building, this was not time to run around. This was not time to play. It was, not, it, it was a, it, wow. you, you, you were reminded of it. The huge cross at the front of the altar with Jesus on it, the crucifixion. I mean, there, there was a sense of we're coming into God's house. And, and of course, I understand we are the temple of God. But I think sometimes we get too chummy with God. You know, we, we, we tend to exalt certain character traits, you know, like his love and his mercy and his compassion and his long-suffering, his grace to the exclusion of his holiness. But God is altogether holy. Yes, he has condescended to us, but he is also transcendent. We need to remember that as sinners, we can never approach God. Never. I read this week that a sinful person can no more approach a holy God than a tissue can survive in a furnace. But we also understand that we were created in the image and the likeness of God. That God desires to have a relationship with us. And so we have a dilemma. On one hand, God wants to have a relationship with us. On the other hand, we cannot approach him in our sinfulness. I like what Pastor Philip Riken says here about this. He says, we, we were made to gaze upon the glory of God. Like Adam who walked and talked with God in the garden, but we have fallen into sin. In our unholy condition, it is no longer safe for us to come into the presence of a holy God. The only way for us to come into the presence of a holy God is to become holy ourselves. This is why God sent his son to be our savior. He is our holiness. We could never keep God's law, but Jesus kept it for us with perfect holiness. And then he died on the cross to take away all of our unholiness. Now when we trust in him, God accepts us as holy in his sight, as holy as Jesus himself. The grace that God has shown through the cross enables us to approach the Holy One, not as Moses did, hiding his face in fear, but by faith, trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
That was so good. You know, God called Moses by name. And we go, wow, that's, that is so cool. Guess what? He calls us by name too. He calls all those whom he loves by name. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, we read, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, speaking to the entire nation, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Those of us who have trusted in Christ and his finished work on the cross have been redeemed and we have been adopted into God's family. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice and that he calls his own sheep by name. Think about that. He calls you by name. He knows you. Are you one of his sheep? Do you recognize his voice? Have you responded to him? If you're here this morning or watching online and you have not yet bowed your knee to King Jesus, but you hear his voice this morning, the call to salvation, respond to him. In humble repentance and faith, confess your sins before the Lord and receive him as your Lord and Savior. So God reveals himself to Moses, but God also unveils his plan and commissions Moses. We see that in verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This section of scripture mimics verses 23 and 24 of chapter 2. If you look closely at it. And in response to the cries of the people, God says, I have come down to deliver them. And he reiterates his covenant promises in verse 8. And, and by the way, a land flowing with milk and honey simply speaks to the fact that this would be a fertile land, a wonderful land, a broad land that would allow for them um, to take care of their flocks. It would be good grazing ground. And the people that are mentioned there are those who are going to be driven from the land because of their wickedness. Now, I'm sure Moses was on board with verse 8. I would have been. Right? 
great. Verse 8, God's come down. He's going to deliver his people. Wonderful, fantastic. But then verse 9 must have come as an unexpected jolt. Don't you think? Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If I was Moses, I would have went, huh? What? Can you say, say again? I, I'm not sure I heard that right. It kind of reminds me of those old Uncle Sam, you know, posters. Uncle Sam wants you. I mean, that's what God is saying to Moses. Moses, I want you. I'm calling you. I have revealed myself to you so that you might know me and serve me. That's why God reveals himself to us. You see, God reveals himself to everyone he calls and he graciously uses them to accomplish his purposes in the world. And it's precisely at this point that we see Moses question God and we see God answer him. In Exodus chapter three, verse 11, we read, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people, the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here we have a couple of objections. They're not the only objections. We'll cover three more next week. But objection number one is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I think what Moses was really saying here is, God, I think you've made a mistake. I, I, th I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm just a shepherd. And, and by the way, God, do you know how old I am? Duh. God, I'm like 80 years old. Besides, I haven't been back to Egypt in 40 years. Place has changed. <laughs> I wouldn't know my way around. What's God's response? I will be with you. I will be with you. It's interesting. God never really answers Moses' question. He simply says, I will be with you. God doesn't dignify the question. You know why? Because it's not about Moses. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It only matters who I am. Who we are is irrelevant when it comes to serving God. It's never about us. It's never about our abilities or our inabilities. It's always about God. And what he can do through us. God is telling Moses, don't worry about what you bring or don't bring to the table. What matters is that I will be with you. And I am all you need. Do we realize that? Do we realize that he is all we need? 
then God gives them a sign, and it's a strange one at that. For it, it, it doesn't occur before the Exodus. It happens after the Exodus when the people arrive at Mount Sinai and begin to worship. You know, how is that a sign? I'm not sure I fully understand it either, but certainly when Moses gets there and he begins to worship and he realized that everything that God has said has come to pass, that it would strengthen his heart. The second objection that Moses gives us is, it's kind of like the first, only kind of turned around, and that is, who are you? If they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I think this is a legitimate question. I mean, even if it is designed to get him off the hook, the people have been in Egypt for 400 years. The God of Abraham probably has become a distant memory to a lot of people. They may even have begun to worship the gods of Egypt. And so they need to be reacquainted with the God of Abraham with the one true God. So knowing his name is a must. And what is God's response? Ayah, Asher, Ayah, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What kind of name is that? Ayah, Ayah. I am. Well, it's the first person form of the verb to be. God is declaring himself to be the eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient one. He, again, is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things, and he upholds all things. And because he is the eternal I am, he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now this helps us to understand why the Jews tried to kill Jesus hundreds of years later. Over in John chapter 8, Jesus is, uh, we'll, we'll say, debating with the Pharisees there. And they're having a hard time with everything that Jesus is saying. And he, he's, he's talking about his relationship with Abraham. And they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself 
and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up the stones to stone Jesus? It's because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be Ayah, the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they thought it was blasphemy. And so they sought to kill him. And in John's gospel, Jesus uses the equivalent Greek form of the verb to be, which is ego eimi. He uses it more than two dozen times. And metaphorically, he uses it seven times. You're probably familiar with some of those. We call them the seven I am statements in the book of John. You can take a look at it on this next screen. You see the various ones there. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus uses it in other ways as well. For instance, in John 8, 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. In John 8, 28, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And then John 13, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. See, people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God, have never read the Gospels. They, they really haven't. I mean, just even in the passage I read earlier where he talks about God is his father. He says, my father. He says, our father. This is my father. Only Jesus can forgive sins. Only God is to be worshiped, and yet Jesus received worship. It is so clear. And here, back in Exodus 3.15, which we need to look at, Let's do that. He says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Here, God tells Moses that his name is the Lord. Well, that's the English translation of Yahweh, or actually the four consonants, YH, uh, YH, excuse me, WH, thought to be pronounced Yahweh. So it, when I read this, I'm thinking, okay, so now I'm confused. Is it Ayah or is it Yahweh? Ayah, Yahweh. Ayah. You, you can almost hear a similarity there. You see, what we have really going on here is a wordplay. All three occurrences of I am in Exodus 13, four, uh, 3, 14 are forms of the Hebrew verb to be. And it's related to Yahweh. Um, in, in verse 15, the words are connected etymologically. Put another way, Yahweh is rooted in the verb to be. So in essence, it's one. It's one name. But God has chosen to be known by his personal name, Yahweh. That's why he says, this is my name forever. 
Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And the reason why you have the consonants and you don't have the vowels is because the Jews thought it was blasphemous to pronounce the name of God. And, 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 and so they didn't. And vowels were inserted later. And, and, and thus we tend to, to say Yahweh. Some translations and some people use the word Jehovah. It's not actually correct, but that's where it comes from. Now, in thinking about this, the, here's another interesting thing, is that the, the name Yahweh appears to be known long before Moses was ever born. It's used several times in the book of Genesis. Now, it's possible that the word just fell into disuse, um, but it's also possible that its inclusion in Genesis is a direct result of God's revelation to Moses because Moses wrote the book of Genesis and he may have used the name that God revealed to him in writing the book. In other words, before Moses, the people didn't know God by this name, but Moses uses his personal name when writing the book of Genesis. Now, in Exodus chapter 6, verse uh, 3, 2 or 3, I think I put it up there, it kind of lends credence to this. He says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Aya, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So regardless of when it was first used, we have in Exodus 3 a fuller picture of who God is through his own words. My final point this morning is found in verses 16 through 18 where God instructs and assures Moses. God tells Moses, he says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God directs Moses first to go to the elders of the people. If Moses is going to lead such a great number of, of people, he needs the help and the support of the elders, the leaders of the people. It makes perfect sense that he would do such a thing. Notice in verse 18, God says, they will listen to your voice. I want you to remember that for next week. Notice also that Moses is not to go to Pharaoh alone. The elders are to go with him. And I, I find what they are supposed to say interesting, and, and for a couple of reasons. First, they are to say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. 
He did? When did he meet with them? I know he met with Moses. When did he meet with them? Are, are they merely showing solidarity with Moses? I don't think so. I think they understood that by Moses giving them God's word, God, in fact, met with them. The same thing is true for us. Every time we open up God's word, God meets with us in his word. In it, he communicates to us who he is, what he's like, what he requires of us, what he has done, what he will yet do. And he reveals to us who we are as well as what he requires of us. The second thing there to say is, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, a three days journey, that sounds like a reasonable request. Now, certainly they, they weren't saying we're only gonna be gone three days. I think they're thinking this is gonna take us three days to get to where we're going. And, 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 and when you hear that though, knowing, right, knowing that God wants to rescue them from Egypt, he doesn't want to just give them a week vacation, right? He wants to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. So when you hear this, let us take a three-day journey, it almost seems deceptive. Why would God tell Moses and the elders to request a three-day journey when the ultimate goal was to set them free? Notice they don't mention when they would return. <laughs> I think that's important. They're not obligated to give the king all the details here. Now, many scholars believe that the expression of three days journey actually means a long journey, just simply a long journey. We, we want to take a long journey. I think a simpler explanation just might be that um, in giving a reasonable request to Pharaoh, his refusal would confirm him to be the obstinate ruler that he is. Pharaoh would not let the people go, not even for a brief period of time, as we see in our remaining verses. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt, this is God speaking, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Wow. What an incredible story. What an incredible God. we may never receive a call like Moses got. But God has chosen to reveal himself to everyone he calls. 
and then to graciously use the called to accomplish his purposes in the world. What a privilege we have to love and serve the Lord. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, this verse tells us that not only God, that God not only has prepared good works for us, that we should do them, but that he's preparing us to do the works, just like he did with Moses here. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. God is at work to conform us into the image of his son. And God can use everything at his disposal to bring that about. God can use our mistakes and our failures and our sin, even the sin of others. He uses our circumstances, our families, our vocations. He even uses wilderness experiences to refine our character and prepare us for service. So when you think about that, when you think about how God worked with Moses, let, let, let's not make excuses for why we're not serving God. Rather, let's step out in faith, allowing God to work both in us and through us for his glory. I'd like to close by reading a section from the book, Save for God's Glory. I found it powerful. Whatever our present situation, we should try to learn what God is trying to teach us. We may not be doing what we want to be doing. We may not be living where we want to be living or with whom we want to be living, for that matter. But we should always embrace the attitude of John Wesley, who prayed, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. A rose may smell as sweet by any other name, but there is no name sweeter than the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and for your word to us. And Lord, we thank you for the riches that are contained therein and the lessons that we have learned here this morning. Pray that we would take them all to heart. That Lord, that we would be attentive to your voice and that we would be quick to obey. Lord God, we love you and we ask that you would use us for your glory 
and for the furtherance of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.